So um, it's actually, it's, it's not bad. It's kind of nice being like seven hours ahead of editors because I just get up whenever I want to and then <laughs> like work for a little while and then w- they wake up and it's already like mid-afternoon for me. And I'm like, oh, hey, I have like a story for you already or you know, I've like gone out and done reporting or done other stuff um, before they're even up to like hassle me about things. So it's nice. Yeah. When I saw the, uh, the one that you had at discourse today at, at 1030 in the morning, I was like, Oh yeah, I, I, I can, I can see like what happened there. Like <laughs> Jack was already like ready to go. Yeah. 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 Um, Cause I, I didn't, I don't, I didn't really have much reporting to do for, um, I kind of didn't like schedule anything for today because everyone was just sort of like curious to see whether or not, you know, we were actually going to get invaded. Um, (laughs) So I I was just sort of like, yeah, you know, Wednesday, I guess we'll just like hang out and, you know, do whatever. Um, And of course, like nothing happened. So I just like didn't really do anything. I just sort of typed up a blog for discourse and then, um, yeah, just did a, did a little bit of a, um, sorry, I was looking at an email, but yeah, did a little bit of groundwork for another story, uh, later in the week and here we are. Yeah, cool. So, um, I think we'll just, we'll just start now and people can trickle in, uh, as they come. Um, Sweet. yeah. So welcome everybody to the Flashpoint podcast. My name is Owen Higgins. I am your host. If you're listening on the app, please hit the subscribe. So, uh, you can get notified when we go live, which is. We go twice a week, um, try and have some interesting stories for you. And uh, today uh, we have a very interesting story. I'm joined by Jack Crosby. Uh, he is a writer with Discourse Blog and with Rolling Stone. And he is uh, right now uh, in Ukraine and uh, reporting from there and kind of getting a sense of of where things are at. Jack was there before in 2015, I believe. He can correct me after this if, if I have that wrong. Um, and, you know, kind of got to know the country and uh, has has a has an interesting uh, perspective on this that I think is often lost in the way that people write about Ukraine and about conflict in general, in that it, it your writing, Jack, kind of focuses more on... Uh, you know, the people in Ukraine rather than the leaders, uh, you know, especially like the reader, the, the leaders of if, if you just want to call it like very broadly, uh, you know, Russia and the West. Right. Um, a lot of people kind of talk about this conflict kind of solely in those terms, in the terms of looking at the the two kind of global uh, powers kind of going at one another. But. I like the way that you kind of get more granular. You talk to the people on the ground about what they're feeling and um, and what this kind of stuff means for actual people, which I think is really important. So uh, I, I really appreciate that perspective. Uh, do you want to do you want to talk a little bit about um, your background in Ukraine before before we kind of get into what's going on now? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Um, so I went to Ukraine for the first time in 2015, um, sort of right in the middle of when um the uh when the the war in that country was first uh kind of kicking off um i i missed the beginning of it uh which obviously kind of has roots in in 2014 um shortly after the the maidan revolution um in in which uh ukraine's um sort of like uh 
oligarch-supported, very Russian-friendly uh, president uh, Viktor Yanukovych was was ousted, um, and you know that that conflict inspired others. The 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 Russian annexation of Crimea, and um, then this sort of like burgeoning separatist movement, which was like partially organic and partially like very you know astroturfed by um, uh, by sort of Russian. Uh, mass media and intelligence uh, sources, and then eventually by just regular Russian troops. So, um, you know, the conflict's been going on for a while. Um, I studied it quite a bit in grad school. Um, I went to grad school for journalism, but um, I'd always had uh, sort of like uh, a focus and um, I guess like a real interest and passion in doing conflict reporting in general. Um, I'd done a little bit of just sort of like, I guess you would call it general foreign correspondence um, before I went to grad school when I was younger and covered um, a, a, a few different like natural disasters and, and other um, sort of like international issues and stuff like that. Um, and I, I found those stories really compelling to me. Um, it's a, it's, it's something that I've been, I've been thinking more about recently because there are anytime you're covering sort of like suffering and death and these, these like crises and stuff like that. Um, there's good ways and bad ways to, to go about it. And I think there's a lot of pitfalls that like reporters can fall into really easily. Um, and I, I, I feel like now I'm at least sort of familiar with some of those in that, um, I've fallen into them and then, but you just have to be sort of self-aware about your work and, so I think that's kind of led me to to where I am now. Um, in 2015, I went out to Ukraine. I didn't I didn't have a, a, a super good idea of what I was doing. Um, I knew that I didn't. I wanted to try to stray away from like you know the t- typical narratives of combat reporting, which is just chasing kind of like bang bang and stuff like that, and trying to write um, about things just from the perspective of the the people who are actively you know carrying out the violence. Um, and yeah, so that, that was, that was sort of my first trip of Ukraine. Um, and it's, it's kind of led me, I, I came back now because I really felt, um, like once again, this, this conflict was just kind of getting dragged back into the, into the forefront of, um, kind of the global mass media, which isn't something that happens very often for a lot of conflicts. Like most of the time a war gets like, you know, it's, it's, 15 seconds of fame and everyone talks about it for a little while, which is exactly what's happening in Ukraine now. And then just kind of goes back to being forgotten for, for a long period of time. Um, so I figured that, you know, while this, while Ukraine was having another 15 minutes, hopefully I could, I could come and, and maybe try and um, do a little bit of work that was somewhat of a, of a corrective to, to some of the standard, like kind of cliches that come out of a, of a crisis like that. So yeah, I'm sort of, yeah rambling about that but yeah no 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 i mean that that i i kind of wanted to you know just just jump on a part of that and and tease it out a little bit more you know you're talking about uh the pitfalls of of war reporting and conflict reporting and i think that i mean you know as i said i think that your work is a good corrective to that um and and in that I'm talking about your work on Rolling Stone, uh, you know the two articles that, that that you've written in this month so far. I think it's just two, right? Or uh, yeah, just just two for Rolling Stone. I had yeah. one published, uh, I guess, like early February, and then one that, um, that to be clear, the the one in early February was sort of more of a 
of an essay kind of like retrospective looking back at my time there and at the 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 situation as it currently is um yeah but I and think then the I one that went it, up yesterday was yeah but but there are there are like there are thematic ties between the two where where you know you're talking to uh ukrainians about what they think and i want to get to that in a second but i do i just want to like uh focus a little bit on the media and because your piece in discourse today uh is talking maybe not so much about the media but just talking about the way that talking heads are discussing this conflict and uh, i mean uh you know yeah it was it was it was it was very funny uh, a lot of it but i could kind of tell that there was this kind of low level thrumming uh frustration maybe uh, with, yeah. with the way that it's being talked about. And I, I was wondering if you could just talk about that a little bit, you know, not only like media, but also these institutional figures who are, uh, you know, just kind of talking about this conflict in, in really dire ways, but there is something almost like uh, careless about it. Right. Right. So, so I think that the easiest way to understand um, the, the current crisis in Ukraine, um, I'm going to, I'm going to try and tread carefully sort of into this because it's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of complex to, to wrap up. So one of the things here, as in any conflict, the narratives that you're getting from each sort of side and party in the conflict are created in a way to serve that party's goals, right? So in, in the current Ukraine crisis, and I'm, I'm vastly generalizing here, but there's sort of three, narratives that are kind of competing most of the time. One of those narratives is um, largely homogenous to Western governments. So this is the US, uh, Great Britain, France, um, to a lesser extent, Germany, but uh, that, that all sort of have their different, their own um, goals and things, but have been relatively like, you know, these NATO countries relatively united in their messaging. Um, the the second party is the Ukrainian government itself, which has its own goals, which are not necessarily the same goals as the Western governments and the NATO um, NATO governments, but often aligned with them. And then the third party, of course, um, is is the Russian government as well. Um, and so I think where the media comes into play with it is is you know as we know the Western mainstream press is often very deferential to the narrative that comes out of the, the, the Western governments, right? You know, this is the thing that, that people love to rail against that the, the mainstream media is, you know, uh, totally enthrall to the, the sort of war machine of the U S military industrial complex and the, you know, geopolitical agenda of the kind of neoliberal hegemony. Um, and, and I think that's true. Um, I think that that simplifying everything to that point can often like lead people astray in the nuances of certain conflicts. Like um, it's been really frustrating to me to often see uh, critiques of the U.S. Um, and and sort of Western governments' narratives uh, just being phrased in this sort of like like Iraq War era like claim of warmongering um, when I think that's not really what Western governments have been doing and that's not really the point of their messaging. And I think saying that like the US is trying to do Iraq again by drawing us into a war with Ukraine is like is like really missing the point and missing a far more useful critique of what the US is doing. Um, so 
and that, so that, and that, that's, and that that's be been what? frustrating. So, so the U.S. has been pretty clear, and NATO has been pretty clear since the beginning of this crisis that they're not interested in going to war over Ukraine. So, like, I see, I see these leftist memes and stuff that that are like, you know, it's like, uh, I don't know, what's the one that the meme is like the guys like poking the body with the stick or something like that, and the 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 guys are all like Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, like blah blah blah, and they're like, come on now, do a war or something like that. And that's that's not really that's not really what the U.S. government is doing here. Like the defense contractors are doing fine. They have like the amount of weapons that we have sold to Egypt and the Gulf states and all of our other allies, like vastly dwarf any like minuscule contracts that they might be getting for like lethal aid to Ukraine. Right. Like Lockheed and Raytheon don't like this. They don't they're not trying to influence this in any like they're not trying to make us go to war. In Ukraine, they don't care about this. This is like, you know, relatively, relatively small potatoes to them in the grand scheme of like U.S. military appropriations and budgets and like where that money's going, right? And the U.S. government has been very clear throughout this time that like Biden has said many, many times, "I'm not going to put boots on the ground in Ukraine." NATO does not want to get drawn into this conflict, right? So. So in in that sense, that's why, you know, kind of the warmongering accusations are kind of frustrating to me because they're missing the larger critique, which is why the U.S. has taken such an aggressive messaging tactic in in this conflict and how that tactic affects the other parties involved. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm going to try not to get too far into the weeds here, because, again, like, you know, I'm not. I'm not a, a military analyst and, and I'm not an, an, an expert here, but um, I am sort of like a, an armchair media critic. And I, I do have a, a, a like reasonable somewhat amount of, of experience in this particular conflict. But the, you know, I think you can say the grand strategic goal of, of the U S and, and sort of Western governments in general, which has, which the mainstream press has been pretty deferential to is to, find a way to um, sort of uh, check the goals of the Russian government in a way that doesn't involve them using force at all, because they don't, they don't want that. Russia doesn't want that. Nobody, nobody in this circumstance wants the U S to get drawn into a war. Um, And they, they sort of want to use They're they're trying what is, kind of a relatively new soft power tactic, which is this aggressive messaging, this trying to call um, call Russia's bluff at every time um, and and putting out all this stuff that's like like thinly sourced intelligence reports that you know Russia's planning to film a false flag attack video as a pretext for war, yada yada yada. And they're they're doing all of those things um, a, I think like, you know, to get ahead of the Russian government trying to do any of those things. So I, I, there's a really good tweet by um, Sean Walker, the, the Guardian's um, sort of like Central Eastern Europe correspondent. Um, Sean's been uh, in this area for ages, extremely well-sourced, extremely well-known. And, and the tweet kind of lays it out plainly. And he says, either there will be an invasion and we'll realize the U.S. is right, or there won't be an invasion, and in 20 to 50 years, we'll find out that the CIA actually had incredible intelligence capabilities and were correctly calling 
Moscow's bluffs and actually averted a war by calling those bluffs, or it's the most crazily irresponsible messaging campaign imaginable. And he says, it feels like 33%, 33%, 33% chance to me, like a one in three chance that it could be any of those. And I think that's, that's relatively accurate. Um, I think that the actual situation could is, 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 is maybe as it is in these things, like a kind of garbled mix of all three. Right. Um, I don't think that everything that, uh, you know, unnamed, unsourced U.S. officials have said Russia is going to do throughout this this kind of media blitz is something that they were actually prepared to do. Um, but you know, I I I do think, and maybe I, I think I'm I'm probably sort of in the minority of of people and journalists who are vaguely on the left that think this. But you know, um, I I do not doubt Russia's willingness or capability to militarily intervene um, in a variety of different formats in countries that it wants to exert power on. Like, yeah. you know, the, 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 the other thing, especially after yesterday's news, that um, Russia had withdrawn, like, some forces and units from the border. You know, there was a big, there's, there's another uh, tweet that said, you know, when the uncertain part of this crisis is over, whatever the outcome, you'll see people saying, in retrospect, it was inevitable that, like, people saying, like, there was never going to be an invasion, there was never going to, this was all a different thing. I, I don't, I, I, I really do get the sense from, from being here and from knowing of sort of the actions um, that the Russian government has taken in the past in an attempt to coerce uh, different concessions out of Ukraine and, and different concessions out of, um, uh, you know, former Soviet republics and things like that, that I, I, I think it was entirely possible that there were, were and, and still are military options on the table. Um, I, I, I do think yeah. that like this catastrophic Atlantic council, like they're going to rain bombs down on Kiev and storm tanks. Like every, I, I, I don't, like no, that's that's you know that I mean, luckily, that is that is ludicrous. But the thing yeah, with that though is that you know that I mean that was just like broadly ridiculed. Uh, I think I yes, I don't think like nobody yeah. really buys that. But um, I I do think that it, I think the one one interesting balance that you strike uh, you know in your reporting and and I think in 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 this conversation as well is this idea that like that there's. Uh, there are these wild claims uh, by the U.S. and like you're saying, like it could be, it could be true, it could be bullshit. It, it you know, like we won't know if, for a very long time. Um, and you know, so people in Ukraine are like listening to this, listening to this like constant hyping up of of the danger. Um, and you know, however you look at this uh, situation, there are uh, what like there's like a hundred and thirty thousand. Uh, Russian soldiers like near the border. And so it just seems like it must be a very stressful situation uh, for people in Ukraine. Uh, but a lot of the reporting that, that's coming out from there uh, really seems to indicate that they're not like super stressed about it um, and and that they think it's a little overblown. Uh, is is that a misinterpretation of, of what you're seeing or or is that about what it is there? No, I, I think that's I think that's pretty accurate. And and so I think that that brings us to like kind of the third perspective that I was talking about in this. You have the Western governments, you have the Russian governments that are all trying to influence their own aims. And then you also have the Ukrainian government. Um, 
And the Ukrainian government throughout all of this, um, for better or worse, has been has has downplayed the threat of invasion enormously. Like the 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 difference in rhetoric between what the Ukrainian government was saying and what Western governments were saying was was just massive and huge. And I think similarly to Western governments had every incentive to play up this conflict as much as possible because they wanted to they wanted to use that rhetoric and that sort of like soft power to to hype up this like sense of like united NATO opposition to like if Russia tries anything, it's going to be really bad. We know what you're doing, yada yada yada. That was their incentive. And so they did that. And the Ukrainian government's incentive very much was to was to downplay this 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 um, crisis because they they are essentially responsible for their own constituents in their own country, and it's 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 in their every incentive to to keep people calm, to stop you know their economy crashing or their currency fluctuating wildly because people aren't sure if there is going to be an invasion or not, um, et cetera, et cetera, and. You, you've seen throughout this crisis, um, uh, Ukrainian pres- President uh, Volodymyr Zelensky saying, like asking Western media and asking um, Western governments to like tone down their rhetoric. Um, and there was it, it was it was really funny in early February. There was a week um, which you know people who have been following this super closely might remember where the U.S. kind of did tone down their rhetoric. They were like they were like doing impending invasion, impending invasion, impending invasion. And Zelensky was like, please, I am begging you knock it off. Like this isn't helping us. And the U S toned it down for like a week. And then I don't know, they got some other intelligence estimate or whatever. And they ramped it all the way back up to impending invasion. We're pulling everyone out of our embassies. Like (laughs) it's go time again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, They got bored. Yeah, who knows? I mean, they got bored or they thought, like, we need to put the pressure back on. We need to, you know, I, I'm not sure. Um, and now you have just just today, um, there was the, the head of um, Zelensky's political party was basically saying he claims that Western media, quote, hysteria is now costing the country two to three billion every month um, because some of this hysteria did have real like economic impacts on, on, on Ukraine. Like there were, there were airlines that were canceling service into and out of Ukraine. I mean, when you walk around Kiev now, um, which, you know, to be fair, it is the middle of um, February, which is like not the most pleasant time to, to visit Kiev, but like, you know, it's, it's not, as I said to you privately before, it's, it's, it's not much colder here than it is in New York in the winter. If, if at all, you know, it was like in the like mid upper thirties today, um, like it's, it's not bad. You can put on a jacket, but you know, that to be said, the, the, the streets are pretty empty of tourists. Um, Kiev feels, you know, very calm and kind of business and usual, but it is like noticeably, I think a little bit slower and more empty than it has been in, in my prior trips here. Um, so yeah, you know, this, 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 this rhetoric and, and painting, most of this country is like this impending war zone um besides you know like really freaking out my parents and girlfriend um has also like had direct effects on the ukrainian economy and has had direct effects on a lot of the people that are living here you know um as i said in the rolling stone piece a lot of the ukrainians that i talked to um some of them that had really covered the news 
said, you know, uh, or, or really consumed the news said, like, we understand the U.S.'s reasons for doing this. Um, and maybe they're justified if it helps prevent war. But like, it's really not doing anything for our sort of like collective mental health as a society. Like it doesn't, it doesn't help. And it's very annoying to have someone like crying wolf, um, even if you are like media literate enough to understand like why they're doing that. But it's like, yeah, Yeah, it's not fun to have someone saying like, you're going to die. You're going to die. You're going to die every single day. Yeah. You're just in crisis mode, like all the time. Like you're just always like, right. There's, there's probably like no chance to to just chill out because yeah. you're just always I mean even even though it does seem like uh there's a sense there that this isn't going to happen or or if it well, is you know well, I, I yeah, think actually, it's yeah, can, it's, yeah. it's it's the it's the traditional response to people that are faced with like stressful situations like this which is you know it becomes very easy to just a lot of people eventually get to the point where they just kind of reject this or they just kind of have to put it aside. They have to just say like, everyone's lying to us. I don't believe in any of this. I don't like very few people in Kiev, I think. And it's, it, it, it would honestly be tough even with media selection bias. I'm trying to think of all the quotes, like, you know, from like Vox pop stories, like man on the street. Like if, if you can find that many where someone's like, yes, I believe this invasion is going to happen it's going to happen now. Like most people on the street, like don't, don't think. And even ones that think like Russia is going to militarily intervene or invade in some way, they're not saying like, they're like, we don't think it's going to reach Kiev. Like, you know, the, the chances of that just aren't. And, and I think, you know, that's a, that's a, that's both a, a sound estimate, but it also reflects like that you can't, you know, people can't like force themselves to live under this sense of impending doom for, for that long before they kind of just have to be like, listen, either it's going to happen or it's not, I don't think it's going to happen. And like, I have to go to work today anyway. So what are you going to do? Right. Right. There's like, there's only so much control I can have over this situation. Yeah. And, um... The, the other, I mean, the other just thing that I want to mention that a lot of people mentioned to me as well oh, is right, that, yeah. um, you know, the, the Western media is sort of, uh, I think, people on both the left and the right um, have sort of treated this this latest crisis as like, as if this is something new. Um, when, you know, there, this is this is the, this is the either the second or third significant Russian troop buildup on Ukraine's borders in the past like 12 months, right? Like they, they did this in the spring. Um, granted that the scale of the current buildup is is drastically different than any other one, which I think is the only thing that like is one of the things that makes even like skeptics such as myself like kind of worried about this. I mean, like Russia like has like sixty percent of its of like its active like battle groups near Ukraine right now. Like the the the, the military buildup is is absurd, but. You know, Ukraine has been at war effectively with Russia for eight years now at this point. Like the I don't think there's really a rational explanation of the conflict in 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 Donbass at the moment that doesn't acknowledge that, like the Russian government and Russian military forces had a direct role in 
in inspiring it and continue to have a direct role in like supporting and supplying the forces that are fighting against the Ukrainian government now. So this is this is a country that's essentially had like a little simmering I I don't want to make the comparisons to Iraq or Afghanistan because those are very different things. Um but like, you know, they they have had they have these are countries that have been at war for eight years. Like that almost everyone in the country knows someone that has gone over there and served, knows someone that has come back, knows someone that knows someone who had a brother die or, or, or you know, or uh, has a family member that was forced to move their home or, or, or something like that. Like, the, you know, as we know, as Americans, albeit in a slightly different context, you don't on a national identity scale, sort of like go through eight years of war without it kind of changing your thinking and how you process some of these things. Right. So, yeah, yeah I, I think for a lot of people, it's just like their, their senses for a lot of Ukrainians is they're like, we've been under attack in various forms by the, the Russians and their proxies for eight years. Like, how is this any different? You're just telling me what they're going to do more war like, okay, we've heard that before, you know? I think, I, so I, I think some of the denialism comes from that as well. Yeah, I, I think a lot of the time, um, and, and this is just kind of like, you know, a, a general kind of reaction to, to what you're just saying there, but a lot of the time when, you know, we think about war and we think about conflict, um, you know, we're thinking about it in terms uh, of the kind of flashy, uh, news coverage that that you referred to uh, earlier in the show, where you were talking, you know, like 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 it flares up and then it goes down, and it's kind of yeah. like when the war is hotter or when things are getting like at more crisis mode. But the but the reality is that um, any any kind of conflict or or uh, you know outright shooting war or just kind of like the you know this this kind of just ongoing uh, uh, war conflict like between these two countries, like it's not always going to be a hot shooting war. It's not always going to be, no. um, you know, explosions and bullets and stuff like, like a lot of time is just kind of sitting and waiting. Um, and I also wanted to say, you know, like you, you're talking about, um, you know, Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, my impression with a lot of what the U S has been doing here and, and uh, the UK, I think as well, and other Western governments is um, it, it, it appears to me that there's this desire um and and it's kind of, I think it's kind of maybe like difficult to really push this too hard uh, on 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 their behalf. But there's this kind of desire to get Russia stuck in some kind of a quagmire on, on just a strategic level. Like that would be like an outcome that that they would enjoy, that they would like, because that that you know that would be a, a weakening of the Russian position. Um, I'm curious as to what your thoughts are about that. And I'd also like to say, you know, any, anybody who wants to jump in on the call, uh, feel free and, and, and we'll take you. But uh, uh, Jack, go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm not sure how qualified I am to like say I, I think it's definitely possible. I, I don't want it. I don't know if I would like go so far as to say like the U.S. would love it if Russia fully invaded Ukraine and got bogged down in a in a sort of guerrilla insurgency against Ukrainian nationalists and stuff like that, and it, it decreased it decreased Russia's power um, overall. 
I think it's possible. I'm sure there are probably members of the U.S. establishment and agency that are sort of thinking of it that way. Um, but I think I think a lot of a lot of these um, a lot of these like grander like geo strategy conversations kind of acknowledge that Russia is already sort of operating from a pretty weak position, um, and that's you know that's through the fault of, of decades and decades of history that, uh, you know, I don't have the time or the expertise to like fully get into, right, right, course, um, yeah. you know, but yeah, part of this has to do with, with like NATO's expansionism and, and relative U S hegemony since then, like the, no party is blameless in here. Like I, I think, um, I, I have to be careful sometimes because I do think that my like sort of personal perspective, um, does not like skews, a little like more towards like blaming certain aspects of Russian antagonism than, than like a lot of, a lot of leftist perspectives sometimes Um, just because like, you know, I've I've been here and I've seen that and we've seen that in many, many other countries. And I think that like an understanding of a, a proper understanding of the world has to like sort of understand that, that other countries besides the U S can be, um, malicious actors and can have, um, you know, imperialist ambitions that they're pursuing in, in a way that is, that is not just reactive to what the U S is doing, you know? Sure. So, so um, maybe, maybe, maybe just to, just to clarify, maybe, maybe yeah, I got, sorry, I got on a tangent there. No, 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 no um, that's fine. But <laughs> just like a cleaner way to say what I'm saying maybe is, is that, uh, that outcome, would not be something I think that the U.S. and the West would like necessarily reject out of hand, and like that wouldn't—that's like that to them is not the worst outcome that could happen. I—I um, I think no, I, I don't think it's the worst outcome that happen, that could happen. Um, I think that they're still pretty incentivized to prevent that outcome because I think the the longer that they can Russia's position is weaker and why we're sort of in part of this crisis is, is the longer and, 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 and like stronger Ukraine's own kind of economic and political sovereignty is the, the more that kind of weakens Russian Russia's like general position and standing in the region. Right. And that's not necessarily an aggressive thing that NATO is doing, although there certainly have, you know, there have been parts of that. But I think most of NATO now has is most NATO countries now have pretty much said, like, we don't really want Ukraine to join NATO. Like it's Ukraine that still says we want to be in NATO, obviously, so that they'll presumably stop getting invaded. But you know, I, I'm not sure if the Western governments are really pursuing that expansion because they know that in general, um, Ukraine's economy and and the Ukrainian people, for for the most part, have been seeking out much more sort of like it's not really as much about NATO as it is about the EU and the economic structures that are that are involved in that. Like a, a huge aspect um, for many people that that I've spoken to in the 2014 uh, protests in the Maidan Revolution. Um, was that it was a huge amount of students that were pissed off that the deal the Yanukovych regime had cut with with Russia 
would would affect their chances of being able to like have Ukraine in the in the Schengen visa zone where they could go to other European Union countries and get jobs and go to school and things like that. Like it was students who were pissed off that because they wanted they feel that there are better opportunities for them in being more aligned with the EU and the West and stuff like that. And and there's a whole bunch of stuff that that goes back to with like, you know, the EU and the West's um, kind of like ostracism, ostracizing and isolating Russia, you know, for decades and, and things like that. And that's getting into things that, again, I'm not an expert in, but um, yeah, I, I think, I think what I'm trying to say in a cleaner way is that, Sure. Would the U.S. like Russia to get bogged down in another quagmire war? Yes. But I I think that there are better outcomes for them that don't involve that, right? That yeah. involve involve allowing Ukraine to sort of complete its – complete a more assimilation into this sort of European economic sphere of influence – and, and letting it sever some of its ties from Russia rather than letting Ukraine like become Afghanistan as, as like a completely invaded bombed and destroyed state. Like, yeah. Yeah. I, no, yeah, I think there, there are better outcomes for that than for them. Yeah. So just, just to shift uh, to kind of the more on the ground perspective, um, you know, like I said, like in your reporting, you've been talking, you, you've been talking to a lot of people, uh, who are in uh, in Kiev and uh, you know in Ukraine and and talking to them about what they think about what's going on and I'm just I'm just kind of interested like what what things are like there I mean like you said it was kind of quieter than usual but but things are kind of normal ish what, what's what's just your general sense I mean what what's what's like a normal day for you uh, what, you know while you're there doing your reporting. Yeah, I mean, it's, Kiev is Kiev is, is is much the same as as the pastimes um, I've been here. Uh, I don't think I've 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 ever actually been here this late in the winter. Um, when I was here in 2015, I was here mostly through. I got there uh, sort of like late spring, early summer. I think like right in the beginning of July, so early summer. Um, and I stayed there off and on in uh, in kind of all around the country in various places until. Um, I left in about mid-November in, in 2015. So um, it's a little colder and a little quieter um, than, than I remember. But, um, you know, yeah, in general, the city, the city seems to be sort of proceeding as normal. Um, I've been uh, the past couple of days. So I, I just got here on Sunday um, and didn't do anything for, on Sunday because I'd been been flying for um, you know, 15 hours or something. Um, and, and yeah, mon- Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, so far, it's just been, um, kind of get up, check in on what's going on, maybe go out into the city and sort of like walk around. Um, I've done a decent amount of my reporting just cause it, it is, it is still COVID and like, it's in the middle of the work week. So I've just been like kind of WhatsApping like friends that I know and like been introduced to people through that. And then occasionally like just kind of gone out to talk to people on the street and sort of like stroll around the city. Um, my assignments, I, I haven't really had to worry about the, as, as a lot of reporters here, like worry about doing like breaking newsy kind of stuff. Like my editors don't really care about the, the, the minute to minute, um, 
like Ukrainian government says this, U.S. government says this. So I, I'm not under too much pressure to file those stories. I've, I've been joking that I'm very much sort of on like a like vibes-based correspondent beat. Um, and, and yeah. you know, yeah, things are, things are pretty good. I haven't been able to get out um, and like, you know, go out to dinner, go drinking, enjoy the nightlife and stuff as much uh, now just because – you know, past couple of days, um, I've, I've had to file stories and things to editors in New York that's in the evening, but, um, from my prior time in the city, yeah, that's, you know, that's, that's, that's a lot of it. And you, you've seen a lot of articles, um, a lot of publications have done sort of like in the, in the specter of war, Ukrainians party on kind of stories, but like that, that is very much like what's happening. Like I was walking around, um, on on monday evening which was valentine's day and the, the airbnb that i'm staying next to is next to like what appears to be like a really trendy little like frou-frou-y like bake shop called like lila cake or something that was all just like absolutely like hearts and flowers just like vomited all over everything and there were a lot of these like young you know 20 year old couple like the place was jam-packed on on valentine's day like eating these like big elaborate slices of pink cake and stuff like that and having their little dates and things um and and yeah that's i mean that's 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 kind of kind of what it seems like um and it does that kind of goes back to like the normalization of of a state of war where it's just i mean right you can only for so long uh be right I, I think what's interesting now is that, um, and and I haven't been here too long. I, I haven't really been here long enough to fully get the gauge of it. Um, and I'm sure there'll sort of be more uh, events planned. But I would say that Ukraine has, it's very much more in sort of like the war exhaustion phase than it is in like the fully like war jingoism phase, which I think is something that you can see the parallels of that in kind of American society. Like if you think back to like 2002, 2003, even up to like 2005 and 2006 and stuff like that, like it was like rah, rah, like troops at sports games, like everything, you know, stickers on the back of cars, like got to support and stuff like that. And, you know, by the time you hit the, the like mid late 2010s, like, these wars are very much still going on, but they've faded much more into into the into the background of our cultural consciousness. Which is not to say that they're not still extremely influential, but like you know, you don't you don't see the same kind of things um, as you saw then. And so when I'm thinking back to like my time in in 2015, like just walking around the streets of the city, like um, in Kiev, like. I, I happened to be there, I think, um, on Ukrainian Independence Day and stuff. So, of course, there were, like, massive, like, parades through the city and, and, and things like that. Um, but, like, there was much more in 2015, like, rah-rah, sign up for the army, like, support, support our boys in uniform, et cetera, et cetera, than there is now. I think just because, like, this, this war has been going on for so long. Um, yeah, so it's 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 it's, it's 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 funny to see this like renewed Western interest in the war when, for a lot of Ukrainians, it's just like this is the latest development that has been a thing that has been a constant factor in in their lives for this long, you know? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so uh, I see we have uh, Sam Sam Sachs uh, calling in. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take Sam uh, Jack. Thank you for that. I think that was a really good way to kind of 
yeah give that kind of granular uh i think i used that word before but uh you know kind of granular like local flavor to it that i think again has has been missing a lot uh yeah sam you should be good uh let me know if you're having trouble unmuting or anything uh, Hey, okay. I think I got it. Can you hear me? Yep, got it. Hey, guys. First time, long time. Uh, Hey, Jack. Hey. Um, It's been, it's been. I've I've appreciated hearing your your perspective here. We've we've talked a few times on Twitter, and yeah. Um. While while I I might not share the same perspective as you, I appreciate that you're not one of the masses calling me a Putin stooge online right now. (laughs) Absolutely not. (laughs) I um I guess like my my issue with what's been going on over the last the last few weeks is that I I have yet to hear a compelling case for why it would have been in or why it is in Russia's interest to launch this sort of full scale invasion that's been uh, predicted and warned about by the U.S. and I think there's been a conflation here about like is Russia going to do the same sort of thing they've been doing since 2014 kind of fucking around on the border rolling some tanks in, into the Donbass and, you know, playing these kind of war games over there? Or, like, are we looking at uh, 100,000 troops crossing the border and uh, a war of, of regime change and occupation? And it seems like both of those both of those scenarios have been kind of blended together, and that might have been—that yeah. might be an intentional maneuver by uh, the U.S. or other people engaged in this debate. But assuming we're talking about, like, the— the full scale invasion, I, like I had yet to to have heard a, a good argument for for why Putin would do that, considering he can achieve many of his, you know, security goals in the region with the status quo by intimidation across the border, by messing around in eastern Ukraine, and an invasion would just be catastrophic and seem to yeah. blow up most of their security concerns. So I, I was wondering if if if, if there is is a compelling argument that I just haven't heard that you know of that that unless no. he is a madman, which seems to be the State Department line, here, like, <laughs> you know, he just he would do this ridiculously stupid thing, this this act of national suicide. Yeah, I, I, it hasn't made sense to me. I, I think I, I think you're. I think you're absolutely right. Um, and yeah, as, as I've noted in some of our other conversations, I think we sort of agree in the broad strokes. We just kind of differ in some of the details. But what I, what I think you're, you're most right on is that, is that the various, like the scope of Russian intervention has all gotten kind of blended into one. And it's all been like very much sort of flattened out by the U.S. press. And as, as I wrote for Discourse today, has just been like extrapolated on into these like, worst case of worst case, like absolutely ludicrous scenarios where like Putin rolls through Ukraine and decides to go on to Moldova next or something. Um, and like decides to like annex Belarus and like create this new, like new, like fascist Soviet union. They're always like, he's going to make the USSR again. And it's like, well, no, he's not. Cause like Putin's not a communist. Like he's a, like Russia is a hard right country. This is not like, it doesn't anyway. Um, but so, so I think a lot of those things have just kind of gotten mushed into one. Um, and I, I was always pretty skeptical of a, of a like large full scale invasion. The only things that, that did the, the, 
level of military buildup around Ukraine was at, which I mentioned earlier, was at levels that were so unprecedented, even based on prior um, prior examples of this happening before, that I think it made even like sort of skeptical, rational people that had, you know, that had, had, had looked at this conflict before kind of go like, oh, geez, like, oh, shit, that's like, you know, that's rough. Um, however, I think that what this, what that like flattening of everything into either Putin is going to invade and like, you know, whatever that, that Atlantic council woman's tweet was like assassinate the entire Ukrainian government with cruise missiles, shut off water and power and like do all that. Like (laughs) the U S was incentivized sort of to push that line. Um, but I, where I think maybe we differ is that I do think that, there were real incentives for him to potentially do. And I've talked about this with friends here to do some form of like limited engagements. Um, Some of the theories I've heard was that it it was going to be, he was doing this overall buildup on every area to basically stress out and stretch the Ukrainian uh, like ministry of defenses, uh, like the Ukrainian army's resources as thin as possible so that then there could be, smaller incursions or antagonisms or limited actions in certain areas of the country, basically everything he can do to like, you know, I guess put his, his thumb on the scale, push the push pin in a little bit further. Um, I I was talking to some analysts er earlier in this, this conflict who um, I think uh, were, were smart about it. And they were like the, the lowest barrier to entry place that he can do that is the Donbass. He can, up the stakes of the conflict in the Donbass and and lower them whenever he would like to, you know, you, he can he can shift stuff across the border and and make that as painful as possible. Um, I think, I guess, where the fears of of wider involvement came from um, is there were just so many sort of parallels between this current buildup um, and and the and the 2008 invasion of Georgia, um, which was which saw a similar sort of thing, a, a border conflict with a semi-autonomous uh, Russia-aligned uh, separatist republic, and a a government that was aggressively posturing against that um, separatist republic. Uh, but what I think was the difference is, um, so I'm trying to I'm trying to go through this quickly, but. One of one of it seems like the the exacerbating like pain points in this current um, in this current buildup was uh, earlier uh, I believe in the, in the beginning of twenty twenty one was Zelensky's uh, kind of uh, shutdown of the pro Russian TV networks and the sort of like ostracism of this pro Russian uh, billionaire um, Medvedchuk who is running pro Russian TV networks and that were allowing sort of like the the russian state to to affect the sort of information economy in ukraine um i think that some of the smartest analysis i've seen has said that like that was kind of an overstep um in 2008 in georgia uh the the president mikhail uh, saakashvili actually did something even more inflammatory than that in that there was there was sort of an attack um launched on the south ossetian forces saakashvili like you know started somewhat of an offensive against these separatist republics and Putin saw this, this TV maneuvering is kind of the same thing. And I think was looking for a similar pretext and a similar provocation out of the Zelensky government, maybe a renewed, 
that's why you've seen Russian state media. I was talking earlier about the kind of like three points in this. You've seen Russian state media throughout all of this. Their line has always been like Ukraine is planning a big attack in Donbass. Like Ukraine is planning on like, you know, the, the, the fascist terrorists in Kiev are planning to attack the Donbass, like et cetera, et cetera. That's their line because the, it, it, it does serve them if they can have some sort of justification to increase that conflict in some way. Um, but I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I've gotten off track again, but I, I do think that you're absolutely right in that like a full invasion of Ukraine and, and the Ukrainian government has said this as well. And Ukrainian military analysts have said this as well. They've said like, even with the troops that he has built up at this point, like he has the power to do a lot of different things and affect a lot of different outcomes, but like it's still not quite enough to decisively win a full-scale invasion invasion of Ukraine. Because um, you'd have to uh, assume that like every mile that they went, once they hit a certain point, would just be very difficult, right? Yeah, it it would be it it would it would it would be just kind of horrific. Um, but I guess, I guess, yeah. And, and I'm not an expert like military analyst and anything like this, but I, I did see with this buildup, definitely the potential for some kind of Russian military intervention in Ukraine on a scale that was previously unprecedented. And I did see incentives to that for the Russian government because of some of these steps that the Ukrainian government had had and some of the posturing that the Ukrainian government and that Western governments had had, had limited Russia's ability to influence Ukrainian public opinion and influence the Ukrainian government in ways that it could have created a situation where the Russian government felt that the only way they could retain some of that influence was through some kind of like direct coercion through force. I think um, whether that would be a limited and limited engagement, um, another sort of like prod point somewhere that's not the Donbass um, or, or, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into the whole like hybrid warfare things and stuff like that. But, but I, I do think that there was real potential for violence in this current crisis. Um, and I am extremely glad that it, it sort of looks to be like we're headed away from that. Um, I think, I think, I think would really, be my general point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's really important at what, what both of you guys are saying here that uh, the way that this has been flattened in a lot of Western media. Um, and I think that, and neither of you are saying this, but I think that there is a temptation sometimes for people to say, you know, like that's just social media. That's just Twitter. Like everything gets flattened on there, but like, no, it's not like that. Like that's the way it's been reported in newspapers. Like that's the way it's been reported in like longer form journalism. There's not that distinction is not made. And, and I appreciate that this discussion, the, the way that we're both, you, you're both kind of laying that out. Uh, Sam, did you want to add anything? Uh, just, just, just one other thing. And I, I mean, not to, not to be like time for some game theory here, guys, but, <laughs> but let's no, do we're some, all about it. That's all, do some game theory because that's all really anyone's, mean. that's all anyone's been doing this entire time. So like, and also <laughs> that, that pretty much defines us Russia relations for the last, you know, however right. many decades, but <laughs> like, I, I can't help, but think that, you know, like, I don't, 
I, I'm curious what you think the sort of long-term solution is to the sort of low-grade warfare that's been going on in eastern Ukraine since 2014, because, you know, you mentioned Russia media hyping up the threat that Ukraine might launch an offensive into these contested areas, these, you know, so-called breakaway republics. Is, is something like that possible? Is that something that the Ukrainian government would be considering? I mean, you would think that they would, that they would want uh, to, to put an end to this war and to unify their country again. <laughs> Um, so how, how do they go about doing that? And, and the other point I was going to just make real quick, and we can get back to that, is trying to figure out why the U.S. is acting the way it is. And I can't help but think that maybe it has something to do that that conflating, uh, you know, more minor incursions across the border with a full scale invasion is to ratchet up the pressure so that if you do get this more minor incursion, you can still get these sort of sanctions and end to Nord Stream 2 um, that 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 the U.S. has been sort of sort of working on over the last few weeks to get a to get a, um, you know, a concerted effort from Europe to, to issue tough sanctions in response to an invasion. It doesn't matter what kind of invasion it is. You still can get those which U.S. hasn't been able to get those sort of actions from European countries over the last eight years in response to these more minor incursions. Uh, Jack, I just muted you. You can unmute me now. Oh, yeah. Sorry, sorry about that. I had my microphone was scratching on a shirt there um yeah no so sam i I think um i think i think that's that's a really good point that that the u.s it was only in their favor to to basically frame any further violation of ukrainian sovereignty on the part of russia as this sort of like be all end all doomsday situation which i mean to, to be clear would be a very serious breach of sort of like international policy. Like it, it, it's already Russia annexed Ukrainian territory in 2014, just straight annexed it. And then, you know, has, has, has essentially annexed, um, although not, not officially um, portions of the country in, in the Donbass as well. As far as how does the Ukraine, how does Ukraine get that back? Um, that's an incredibly tricky question that I honestly start to get out of my depth the more I like think about. Um, as far as a military solution, at least from my experience in covering those areas and um, and being down in those areas and reporting on them, uh, the the amount of resources that either side would have to commit to meaningfully shift the balance of power in that region would be immense. Like. There's there's a very good reason that um, and and I've been talking about this to my other other journalist friends as well um, who are in Ukraine. If you look at like almost every major publication has done it's like a week in the trenches on Ukraine's front line stories again. Um, these have happened in like three or four cycles over the past eight years. There was like the first cycle that I I like absolutely I participated in in 2015 like. I went out and did my week-long embed in the trenches in eastern Ukraine. And then, like, you know, a few years later, people did other ones. And then a few years, like, every now and then you get a, like, in this frozen conflict, trench, blah, blah, blah. Those stories, like, have not changed. And that reflects, I think, sort of the material and strategic reality of what that area is, is that there there isn't there isn't a military solution there anymore because the two sides are so dug in. And the 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 line of contact and the area around it is so already devastated at this point that there's I 
I don't think it's really certainly not in the Ukrainian government's um, incentives or another to, to pursue like a military solution in those areas. Um, I think Ukraine has, has, um, has definitely made it a priority to say that they want to retain like sovereignty over those areas. Um, I think that's what sort of like these, the, the Minsk agreements um, in 2015 were about is like trying to find a way to preserve some kind of, some kind of an autonomy, um, whether it's sort of political or economic for those regions, um, while making sure that there's sort of at least like territorial sovereignty remained Ukrainian. Um, I, 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 I wish I were smarter and better informed and had a better answer as to how that could happen. Um, I, I don't really only to say that I, I, I cannot see the Ukrainian government launching an attack or a major military offensive there because I, I think that they, they know very well that, um, A, it would be a massive provocation that would give Russia the justification to, or, or the supposed justification to launch whatever military, um, offensive they wanted against Ukraine and B, uh, it, it, it just, it wouldn't go anywhere. I don't think it would work. You think you? I mean, you think you, they would just run up against just such an overwhelmingly more powerful force that that it would just be a disaster. I I think. Well, I think it would. I think that the parallel would be would be South Ossetia in, in two thousand eight. You know, is that is if the government launches a launches some kind of offensive against this semi autonomous breakaway republic, and as as soon as they do that, Russia immediately steps in with, you know, no longer the the. The game that Russia has been playing in Donbass for literally eight years is like, you know, we support the right to self-determination of these like brave separatist people who are uh, who are ethnically Russian. And we want to, you know, uh, protect the Russian people from the fascist junta in Kiev or whatever. Um, and, and I think, yeah, an offensive by Kiev plays directly into that and would immediately give Russia the justification to stop pretending that it doesn't have forces in those regions and just yeah massively reinforce them roll all the tanks they wanted over the border um and and like drastically escalate the war there and and i think i think ukraine's government realizes that that's that's like very not very much not in their in their self-interest definitely sam did you have any comments you wanted to wrap up here Uh, we're getting we're getting close to uh to wrap up time but I, i wanted to give you one more shot here to uh, no, I just no. Thanks, wanted. thanks for for letting me talk. I, I do think that um, that the, the Bernie Sanders op-ed um, that he wrote for the Guardian about this was was um, an interesting take, and I think it would it does sort of give a, a, a guidebook to the left on how to sort of respond to this. In terms Il, of- Ilhan, o, Ilhan Omar's statement was really good too, along the sa- same lines as as Bernie's, I think. Yeah, in terms of like kind of pushing back against the idea that, you know, that that maybe and I guess it's now been kind of spun as like a Russian talking point, but like that, you know, maybe NATO isn't a great idea. It's not a great (laughs) idea to bring Ukraine into NATO right now. Not, you know, countries have a right to self-determination, but also like certain geopolitical moves create a lot of regional instability that might not be worth it. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think I think it's tough because, especially in conversations around this on the left, like the entire idea of whether or not NATO should exist is like a whole is like a is is very much tied to this conflict. But it's also like, well, we at least in in my in my opinion on it, it's like, yeah, we should definitely talk about like whether or not we should disband NATO. But like the the direct reality of the situation is is like is like you know, this crisis does not get solved by the U.S. suddenly saying like, you know what, let's actually dissolve NATO. You know, there's there's just no situation where that happens. So so it's like, I think it's more useful to talk. Um, not to like not talk about that, but um, I, I think I think you know what I'm saying, Sam. Is like is like is figuring out ways that we can like both leave the door open for that point of view, but then also propose like actual solutions for the current um, for the current like for the current conflict. It's like, that makes it's sense. Like, it kind of sounds like you're saying one is a hypothetical, abstract conversation; the other one is uh you know what do you do about the reality right 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 right. yeah yeah yeah. well like i said i i i i I like and uh appreciate listening to jack's perspective yeah um well jack uh thanks so much uh for um joining us and um you know uh, stay safe out there although it really just sounds like you're just Things are just kind I'm, of going along. I mean, like yeah, like I'm just saying, I'm, I'm, I'm just chilling, man. So yeah, right. And, and and I I think they're. I mean, I I don't want to draw us like all the way back into in, into this now. You know, I think there was a a legitimate risk, um, and there were there were you know legitimately threatening things um, that we could see some kind of like provocation or incursion in in a city like Kharkiv or something like that. That's up. Um, very close to the Russian border um, and things like that. And so, you know, I, I also, yeah, do want to stress that like the, the rhetoric has changed a little bit about this conflict, but um, I think despite sort of the news yesterday of the Russian buildup, I, I don't think that like the material or the, sorry, Russian drawdown, I don't think that the material and like sort of, I guess, strategic um, conditions of the current crisis have like changed a whole amount. Um, I think, I think Russia is like kind of very deliberately still leaving all of its options on the table. And so, um, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to stick around here a a while longer for sure. And just kind of see, see how that plays out. But, um, yeah, as far as the immediate safety of Kiev and like my personal, uh, Airbnb a little way away from the city center, like, I I think I'm, I think I'm going to be okay. Yeah. So, uh, so where can, uh, people find your work and, and follow your reporting on this? Um, yeah, so I mean, I'm on Twitter at uh, JS Cross, JS Cros. Um, uh, I write and edit regularly for Discourse Blog, um, uh, which is a, a worker-owned uh, cooperative of sort of we do um, everything from like gossipy internet drama to political analysis and stuff. I would I would put us kind of in the realm of like lefty politics, but it's mostly just a group of 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 good writers uh, who are friends who are working together. Um, and trying to run a sort of media shop in a, in a different business model than usual. Um, and then as far as my work on Ukraine, um, I think most of my stories uh, while I'm out here are going to be for Rolling Stone. Um, I've got a really good 
um, some really good editors there, um, and they've been really receptive to pieces and, and kind of supporting me while I'm out here. So, um, yeah, I'm on Twitter at JSCRS, um, Rolling Stone, anything you can, you can, uh, you can get, uh, through the paywall there or, or, or subscribe to the magazine. And, um, yeah, that's where I'm at. Excellent. All right. Well, uh, thanks Jack. And thanks everybody for listening. Thanks Sam for calling in. And, um, again, if you're listening on the app, please hit the subscribe button. Um, we do about two shows every week. And uh, you get the notifications for them, et cetera, et cetera. Um, All right, guys. Well, thanks a lot. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Cool. Thanks, Owen.